0: You have your Bible, turn to Genesis 19. <laughs> it's great to be in such a loving church. All the introverts are sitting down already. Good job, everyone. <laughs> well, every, uh, every once in a while. Every once in a while, the stars kind of align, and I get to lead worship and preach on the same Sunday. And uh, so, this is one of those, this is one of those Sundays where that just uh, just happened to be uh, the case. Uh, th- this is a this is a very interesting text in Genesis 19. Uh, if you're if you're new if you're new to uh, Gauley City Baptist Church, you just happened to, to come on a really interesting Sunday. Where we have this really interesting text before us that we want to think about together, and uh, there's just so you know, there's a lot more that could be said about it. You know, one of the challenges of preaching is to uh, is to to take a text and to strike a balance between uh, giving information and making application, because a sermon isn't a lecture right? We can, if, if you have questions about this text at an intellectual level, come and talk to me afterwards, because it's not going to be a lecture going through the the verses of the text. A sermon is meant to encourage us to action, and so what we want to do in the sermon is think about, okay, what is, uh, what is the author saying here, and then how do we take what he is saying and apply it to our lives today, right? Because this is the This is a a narrative that is, in a lot of ways, it's bound in time and culture, and so we have to pull it out and unpack it, and we have to understand how the the time and culture plays into its meaning, but then we have to think about, but what does it mean today for us? Most of you are not going to go to the city square and look for uh, out-of-town visitors that you can bring back to your home and show hospitality to, right? We live in a different time and a different place. And so we want to take these words and understand them, but then, even more than that, we believe that God wants to use them in our lives today. And so that's what we want to think about and do today as we look at this text, following from the text that we considered last week in Genesis 18. So let's pray together. We'll ask for God's help, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump in together. Father, as we come to Your Word, we come believing that it is inspired by You, it is, it is authored divinely by You, and we believe, Father, that it is useful, that is, that Your Spirit wants to take what is written before us, as old as it is, and to apply it and use it to transform our lives today in 2023, and so we thank You for that, we thank You that the, the words that we have before us are not just words on a page, They're living and active, and your Spirit uses them to work in us and make us more like Jesus. And so that's what we pray you would do today as we think about this text. We pray, Father, that you would use it, that we might leave this place looking a little more like Jesus. Would you take a few moments quietly? Uh, Don't say anything out loud, but uh, just ask God to speak to your hearts uh, from these words. And then would you take, uh, again, quietly, uh, take a few minutes and just pray for me, that God might use me to say what He wants us to hear today. We come humbly, Father. We know that this life is uh, oftentimes too much for us. And certainly understanding the intricacies and complexities of this life is well beyond us. And so we come humbly to You, Almighty God and Creator, Sustainer, our Father. And we ask that You would work in us today. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story is told of a, a dangerous uh, sea coast where uh, shipwrecks were, were frequent. And, and there was on this sea coast a small little rescue station, a really tiny building. There's a few volunteers, there's one boat. And whenever someone would get in trouble on the, uh, on the sea near the coast, they would, they would bravely, these volunteers would bravely go out night or day and search for anyone that might be in trouble and bring them back and rescue them. And many lives were saved because of their efforts. And after a while, this rescue station became famous. And some of those that were, that had been saved thought, you know, in their appreciation, they began to, uh, to, to give money to this small little rescue station uh, as a way of saying thank you for, uh, for what it had done. And so new boats were purchased, and additional uh, crews were trained, and the station grew. And as the station grew, some of the, 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 the volunteers in the, the station kind of became unhappy. They thought, well, you know what, this is a, a dumpy little station. Maybe we, can, maybe we can upgrade this a little bit, right? And so they, they pulled some money together and they made, uh, they made the place bigger. They replaced the, the emergency cots with proper hospital beds in order to care for the people better. They put better furniture in, got a better coffee maker, you know, those important kinds of things. And soon the station became a popular place, not just for rescuing people off the coast, but it became kind of a hangout. Like a, like a club where people could come and see one another and have a good time together. They kept remodeling and, and until the, the, the station, uh, it, it started to look more and more like a, a club where you would go to hang out than it did a station where people were rescued in trouble in the sea. Now, there, there was still a rescue theme, right, in the design, so they had, a, they had an old lifeboat there in the, the main gathering area, so everyone could kind of remember uh, what, their, what their purpose originally was, but that was, uh, that was kind of about it, and one day, just off the coast, a large ship got into trouble, and the, few, or the, the, the volunteers that were there in the station, they went out and they, they delivered uh, they delivered the the survivors of this shipwreck and they, they brought them back in. You know, they were they were dirty and they were smelly and they were wet and, and they were from far off, so some of them looked different, you know, than the than the people in the in the station. And that kind of got the, the members thinking, Well, hold on a minute, you know, you're gonna mess up our nice place here. We've got a good good thing going. And so the members got together and they decided, you know, let's build a, let's build a little uh, adjacent building, uh, maybe with some showers in it, so we can, you know, when we rescue someone, we can get them cleaned up before they come into, before they come into the place, right? Before they come into the, the station. And a few of the volunteers there, they thought, but hang on, wait a minute. You know, we're a rescue station. Like, this is what we do, right? We go out and we rescue people that are in trouble On the sea. Well, the majority of the volunteers said, you know what, yeah, that's what we used to do. We kind of don't really want to do that anymore. We like what we've got here. So why don't you guys go down the coast a little bit? and, And, you know, you can start your own rescue station and, you know, you can do that there. How about? And so that's what happened. Some of those volunteers got together and they left and they went down the coast and they started their own little rescue station and it started as a small building and they had a boat and a few volunteers and were rescuing people and so on and so on until eventually the same thing happened there that it happened at this place and at the present time there are many clubs on that particular sea coast and the people who get in trouble on the sea, they just kind of drown and don't make it. Now, that story is oftentimes true for churches, but it's also true for the individuals that make up those churches. And maybe you're here today and that sentiment, that, that, that drift, if you will, uh, is true for you as well. See, this is what happens naturally over time if we're not careful. There's this mission drift where we drift away from what is our core calling and our purpose. Uh, We might call it entropy where everything kind of degrades over time. Or or it's uh, it's this natural pull that we all have to focus in on ourselves and not out to other people around us. It happens to all of us. It happens to individuals, and it happens to churches as well. I mean, look, let's just, let's be honest, right? Uh, We're all busy people, aren't we? We're just trying to make our way in the world, right? And, And life is difficult. And so often, the purpose to which we've been called fades into the background, even as the lost people that are around us, fade into the background. Have you ever noticed that? Like driving down Salt Hill, and you realize, at one time you realized, you know, I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, as you looked out at Galway Bay. But then after about a year, it just becomes scenery, and you forget. It's the same with those people around us. Oftentimes, over time, they just become a part of the scenery, And we forget that God has called us and placed us for those people to rescue those people with the gospel message. As we saw last week, remember back to Genesis 18, we saw Abraham is living in the midst of this wicked people who are under God's judgment. But that's all part of God's grand plan. It's part of his grand design. In fact, he and Lot are both foreigners, strangers, in strange places who are invited to play a part in blessing the nations. And so we think about today from this text, could God actually use even a small number of faithful people to impact a community that is under his judgment? Could he? Is it possible that he could use a small number of faithful people to impact a people, a community, under his judgment? The answer, of course, is yes, (laughs) he can. But I want to suggest that we need to begin with this text by reorienting ourselves and reorienting our thinking around two subjects. All right. The first is our purpose as God's witnesses. We need to reorient our thinking around our purpose as God's witnesses. This is what we did last week. That we said that God's desire and His design is that we would join Him in His mission. This is who we are, and it's why we are here wherever here might be. Now again, remember back, if you look back at this prayer that Abraham prays in chapter 18 verses 22 to 33, if there are faithful people in Sodom, as Abraham prays, if there are righteous people in Sodom, then God in His patience will stay His hand of judgment. So if there are faithful people there, there is the possibility that those people can impact Sodom in that place. There's the possibility of repentance before God brings judgment. So remember from last time that God hasn't simply saved you to kind of sit around living large uh, on the blessings that He provides and that He gives. But he has saved you in order to participate with him in his mission. That's our purpose, to impact those around us with the gospel. That's what we said last week, that God placed Abraham right next door to the wickedness of Sodom. Now, amazingly, in Genesis 19, we see that Lot is even closer. He's like right there, living there. And this week... Having thought about that last week, this week we're going to think about the second subject that we need to reorient our thinking on, and that is our context among a people who are under judgment. Our context among a people who are under judgment. How often do we forget the fate of those lost people around us? How often do we forget that the people that we see around us without Jesus are lost and are under God's judgment? Now, some people would deny judgment altogether, right? Why would God judge? I mean, come on, doesn't He just want us to be happy? What we fail to see when we say that is that God, in judging sin, is ultimately giving people what they want, So, hell will be full of people who want to be there. God's judgment poured out on them because that is what they want. Forever living unrestrained as if they are God. And it will be a terrible, terrible place. Imagine, everyone living unrestrained as if they are God nothing good, a terrible, terrible place. Now, we would never deny a future judgment, those of us in this room. Of course, I know that. We would never, never, never deny that there is a future judgment. But we often live practically as if we don't believe there is a future judgment. We often live practically as judgment deniers, and here, we do that in a couple of ways. Sometimes, sometimes we do that by surrounding ourselves only with Christians. Right? We we surround ourselves only with other believers. Now, it's innocent enough, but think about it. If it's if it's possible for a person to let's say sustain fifty close relationships, oftentimes we don't reserve any of those spaces for non-believers. People that we intentionally want to get to know so that we might be able to point them to the goodness of the gospel. But even worse than that, that's innocent enough, but even worse than that, we often forget the fate of the lost people around us because, let's be honest, we just don't care. We just don't care about them. See, we 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 have this tendency. We, it's easy for us to begin to feel and act as if we're better than other people, as if we came out of the womb saved. Right? Uh, it's easy for us to fall into that. I, I think of uh, I think of Titus chapter three, where the Apostle Paul says, "Remind people to." Uh, to, to, to do these things, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, because that's the way you used to be. But now you're different, see? Uh, or in, in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul gives this list of, uh, of, of vices, that uh, the, these big sins that people commit, and he says, and, and such were some of you, but then you were washed. See? But how often do we begin to feel and act as if we're better than other people? And if we're better than other people who are lost, then let's be honest, we don't care what happens to them. We don't care that they are destined for judgment. Or perhaps more subtly, I think for us, is that we just begin to feel at home in the world, don't we? We just begin to feel like this world is our home. And we just become uh, so, our our hearts become so intertwined in this world that we forget that we were made for another world. We lose the edge of of our testimony. We lose the desire to look different because it's just so comfortable here where we are. In the world. So we need to reorient ourselves around those two things. We need to remind ourselves that, that our purpose is to be God's witnesses in the places that He has placed us. And we need to remind ourselves that we find ourselves amidst a people who are under God's judgment. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. God's judgment stands. And as we get to Genesis 19, we come face to face with what exactly is at stake. In this, what can only be described as a cataclysmic judgment scene, right? I mean, this is like a movie, isn't it? It's like a film. In this this cataclysmic scene, We have to remind ourselves that God's judgment is both just and it is inevitable. It is just and it is inevitable. So, let's consider here from the text how God's judgment is just and deserved. Again, think back to, we're not going to read chapter 18 verses 22 to 33, but think back to what happens as Abraham, uh, it, it, it In the ESV, it says intercedes for Sodom. It's a little more than just intercession. It's almost a philosophical question. And it centers on verse 25, where he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This isn't haggling, where Abraham's kind of saying, Oh, God, how about this? How about this? And God comes back with, No, let's do this. And it's not a haggle back and forth. If it is, God is a terrible haggler. Because God ends up going down right? You would think he would go up, but he goes down. So, it's got to be more than haggling that's going on. God is not this angry old man that has to be talked down from his wrath and his vengeance. See, God is, in verses 22 to 33, God is willing to wait patiently because he is just. He is not going to punish the righteous with the wicked. That would be unjust. And so because he is just, he is willing to be patient. And so when we come into chapter 19, the very fact that Sodom is going to be destroyed implies that there are no righteous there. That everyone in that place deserves the judgment, the just judgment of God. And incidentally, just make a note, and we'll come back to this, that Lot escapes, but not because he is righteous. He escapes, in verse 29, because God remembered Abraham. He escapes because of who he is related to. Now, we'll come back to that, because that should sound familiar to you. But then we see in chapter 19, as we walk through this narrative Chapter 19 leaves us no doubt of the wickedness that we see in, in Sodom. Their behavior is kind of a, a case study of wickedness, isn't it? God already knows they're wicked, mind you. Uh, after, uh, and after the first 11 verses of chapter 19, everyone else is going to know that they're wicked too as we see what happens. So let's look at it. Uh, In in verses 1 to 3, these two angels that have been visiting with Yahweh, the two angels come to Sodom in the evening as Lot is sitting uh, in the city gate. Now this is important. This is where we see that Lot is a part of this town. Uh, he is sitting in, in the prominent place. The, the prominent men of these places sat in the city gate. And that's where they conducted business. That's where they made decisions. So Lot is stuck in here to this, uh, to this city. Uh, and what Lot does is intended to remind us of what Abraham did back in chapter 18. What does he do? He shows hospitality. He invites these two men to their house. He prepares this, this lavish meal for them Uh, that they can enjoy together. This is what Lot does, and it's to remind us of his connection to Abraham. Uh, Lot is in a position of influence within this city. But then, in verses 4 through 11, everything kind of goes pear-shaped. Everything just goes out of control. And we see wickedness uh, as we see it nowhere else in the Scriptures. Maybe besides Judges 19, that may be the only other place that's as graphic as, uh, as this is. Uh, incidentally, if you're surprised, you know, hey, wow, this is in the Bible. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the Bible. You should read it, all right? Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So we see everything's going to go pear-shaped in verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city... Now notice how he writes this. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people... So the last man surrounded the house. Now there's probably a bit of hyperbole uh, there, but the point is that everyone in Sodom is implicated here in this. This isn't just a gang. Uh, This is everyone there. And in fact, some commentators even suggest that the language in the text suggests there could have been women there too. It's not just male necessarily. This is the people of the town, come to revolt, come to confront Lot. And in verse 5, they called to Lot, where are the men that came to unite? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now just rest assured here that they are not interested in having a meal with these two men to kind of hear their stories and get to know where they're from. This is no in the biblical sense, right? Uh, These uh, these people, their intent here is to demonstrate their power over them by sexually abusing them. This is what's going on in the text. Trying to call them back from this ledge of wickedness. We see verse 8, or let's say verse 7 first. I beg you, don't act so wickedly. And that kind of, I think, helps us understand what Lot means in verse 8. I don't think that Lot is actually offering his daughters. I think this is intended to be kind of a bucket of cold water on these guys, where he says, hold on, people. Let's stop and let's return to civilization here. And Because he, he says to them, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, them, let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as they please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I have to think there's a good argument that can be made that this was hyperbolic. That, that this is Lot's way of saying, guys, come on. Let's stop and think about this here. Let's, let's come together and reason uh, as men here. And let's think about what we're doing and not do this horrible, horrible thing. But they don't listen to Lot. They don't listen to him, and eventually they turn on him. Look in verse 9, but they said, stand back, this fellow came to sojourn. In other words, he's a foreigner, and here he is telling us what to do. See, Lot is presenting himself as an obstacle to the desires of these people, and they will have none of it. It's fine uh, that it's fine as long as everything's smooth. But man, once Lot presents himself as an obstacle to their desires, they turn on him and they threaten to do to him the same thing that they want to do to these men. Who is this foreigner who has come among us and become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them, and they pressed hard. They, they come for him, and eventually in verses 10 and 11, the angels have to intervene in order to keep control. They have to, to yank uh, Lot in, and they strike these, these people with blindness, so that they cannot carry out the wicked things that they desired. So the point has been made here in these first 11 verses, and it's crystal clear to us God's judgment upon these people is deserved. These are wicked people. Just look at what they wanted to do. But not only is God's judgment just and deserved, God's judgment is inevitable. It's inevitable. While the presence of Abraham's family is meant to stay God's hand of judgment and lead others to turn to him, Remember, if if even 10 righteous or faithful people had been found, God would not have brought judgment upon Sodom because it would have meant the possibility of repentance. But God is about to call time on Sodom. He's about to say, enough. That's it. No more. In verses 12 to 22, just consider a lot. You know, As a family member of Abraham, he's intended to influence. Remember back in chapter 18, uh, I've chosen, verse 19, I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and household to keep the way of the Lord, the righteousness and justice. And through that, God's mission of blessing the nations is going to come about. Lot is intended to influence, and he's positioned to do that. He's in the city gate. He's among them, and yet he cannot influence them. They are entrenched in their sin. Remember, they don't listen to him. In verse 9, they turn on him because he's become an obstacle to their desires. In verse 14, the angels have told them, go get your family because we're getting out of here. And he goes to his sons-in-law, and we're not really sure they could be already married to daughters, or it could be that they're legally engaged, which was binding in that day. So that's why perhaps the text text calls them already sons-in-law. But either way, he goes to his sons-in-law in in verse 14, and he says, the Lord is about to destroy the city, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He goes to his sons-in-law and says, guys, we got to go. God's going to bring judgment on this place. And they mock him. They ridicule him. And they ultimately reject his warning. Even his wife rejects him. As they flee Sodom in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, this doesn't just mean that she is running and she kind of turns around and and catches a glimpse of of what's going on. It's more than that. If we we look at a passage in Luke where Jesus references Lot's wife, this is much more than just turning and seeing something. This is a turning back. Uh, She ceases to follow Lot and escape, and she turns around to go back into Sodom the city has just captured her attention and her affection and she must go back her heart understand her heart was hard even before God's judgment came she wanted to go back because she loved the city and even lot if we look at the story even lot escapes by the skin of his teeth as the city is destroyed. And even he is a bit disappointed that the city is destroyed and that he's had to escape. Look in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, get out. Verse 16, but he lingered. He's disappointed. He says, God, I love this place. Don't destroy it. It's great. There's a Supermax and a McDonald's. It's fantastic. Verse 18 uh, or verse 17, they tell him, Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot says, Oh, no, Lord, if your servants found favor, uh, don't let me go to the hills, lest disaster. How about this city over here? This will be good, won't it? He lingers, he's disappointed. He almost seems even depressed. As we get to the epilogue in verses 30 to 38, uh, his daughters and perhaps even Lot feel like there is no one left on earth. They feel like perhaps God has destroyed the whole place and Lot drinks himself into oblivion as his daughters essentially rape him in order that they might have children. There is no trust in Yahweh. There is no trust that God is is able to provide for them. See, see, this is the tragedy of Lot. This is his legacy. This is his legacy. Uh, If you look in verse uh, 37, the firstborn Bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami, and he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you know Moab and Ammon, they became intense enemies of Israel. In Numbers 25, they lead Israel into debauchery and idolatry, and they, they, they flip the switch where God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon Israel. And this is Lot's legacy. He escapes by the skin of his teeth, and he ends up fathering these nations that will prove themselves to be the demise of Israel. And we think, okay, well, man, why did God save Lot? It wasn't because Lot deserved it. Lot deserved the same judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah got. But look at verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the destruction. He's saved because of another. He's saved because of his relationship to Abraham. And that, doesn't that sound like us in Christ? We're not saved from God's judgment because we are righteous or because we are faithful. We're saved because who we are related to. We are related to Jesus through faith. Related to Jesus through faith. So while we, we look later in the New Testament and we see in, in texts like Romans 1 verse 18, we see uh, that God's wrath is being poured out even today as he is giving people over to their own sinful desires, giving people what they want. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we know that, that, that God's wrath is even now being poured out as He gives people over to their sinful desires. But even then, we know that there is a day of final judgment that is coming where there will be no more hope. And so what does this narrative about judgment have to do with us? Well, strangely, it is for us a kind of invitation In light of God's just and inevitable judgment, we are invited to live on purpose now in the light of eternity to come. So this act of God's judgment, and in other places that we see God's judgment in Scripture, the flood, uh, other places where we see God's judgment, should serve as a warning for us. It is a kind of foreshadowing of a greater judgment to come. God is just. One day His patience will end, and He will call time on sin forever. And living now in light of the end means that we understand our place here. That we are as believers embedded here. Not to look like everyone around us, but to offer an alternative, to offer a hope and a future, to offer a vision of a different kingdom. And look, it's easy for us to feel that this world is our home, it's easy for us to feel settled here, but we must be those who are looking to another kingdom who are looking to something else, setting our hearts and our affections on the kingdom that is to come, deriving our identity from who we are in Christ, and not as a foreigner or a stranger here in this particular place. This is why we're here, to offer the hope of life to those around us through Christ before it's too late. In Mark chapter one, Jesus says to his disciples, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's an identity statement. As we follow after Jesus, he uses us to rescue people who are under judgment. See, because the the bill for sin must be paid. The bill for sin must be paid. In God's justice, you can pay it, right? God's judgment standing over a person, He will exact the price that His justice demands. Or, in His grace, through faith, another can take it. And that's the offer of life that is before us. This text confronts us Each of us with a choice. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So here's the question. Which road are you on? Because here's the thing. Each of us must believe for ourselves that Jesus paid for our sin. Salvation is not about proximity. It's not about being close to the message. It's not about being close to the hope of the gospel. It's about receiving it and believing it for yourself. Think about it. Lot's wife was nearer to the offer of life than anyone. And yet it wasn't enough because she was captivated by what ultimately destroyed her. So which will you choose? Look, if you're not a believer today, understand that you are never promised tomorrow. You're never promised later today. This is your day, and this is your moment of opportunity. We don't know when God is going to call time on sin and bring His final judgment. So look, if your heart is soft to the idea of God's grace through Jesus, don't delay. Make today the day that you respond in faith, because here's the thing, there comes a point when you've heard it so many times that your heart rejects it and becomes hardened to it. So if you're kicking the tires and if you're thinking about faith in Jesus, just, "Eh, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, maybe, but I'm just not sure. Listen, if your heart is soft, then you respond today while you can. Because there will come a day if you continue to reject that your heart will become hard and you won't even be able to hear it. And this is why it's so important that we as believers encourage one another to persevere in our faith because our hearts can become hard too. Listen to what gets said in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, here's the thing that Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. We don't vaguely kind of funnel down towards the kingdom. We enter through the gate by faith onto the road, and then we keep stepping forward by God's grace. We keep stepping forward, following after Jesus together. We don't do this alone. Lone wolves, they don't make it. Lone wolves die. Look at Lot. But together, we encourage each other to hold fast to Jesus. And that demonstration of the gospel, persevering in faith together, cannot help but impact people around us. As we extend the offer of life to them. Who knows? Who knows what God might choose to do through even a small number of faithful men and women who, in light of the end to come, decide to follow Jesus and live for impact. He might radically change your housing estate or your school or your sports club or your place of work. We don't know. He could do that. Will we be found faithful? to His calling, by living on purpose, right now, in the light of eternity to come. This is what God calls us to. So let's be faithful. Let's pray. Father, as we think about Your Word, as we think about the judgment that is certain and inevitable, Father, I pray that you would draw people uh, away from that to yourself. Draw them, Father, to faith in Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would help us to remember that to which you have called us, to, to remember the mission that you've called us to, that you might use us. Help us, Father, to encourage one another to persevere walking the narrow road. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.